Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Hannah Blackiston. Before I introduce the team, we would like to acknowledge that the bushfire crisis is still ongoing. And while we won't read you an entire list of the places you can donate each week, especially as it's likely to continue for several months still, we would urge you to donate, if you're able to, to any of the many appeals that are running around in support of relief. Or if you can't donate your money, then please look at ways you can donate your time. The RFS or WIRES are both great places to start if you are looking for more information. But now, joining me to break down your week in media and marketing are Mumbrella reporters Brittany Rigby. Hello. And Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. And this week we'll be talking about more movement at Dense Aegis Network. Alcohol advertising delivers the highest number of code breaches in 21 years. Who are the key players in the Australian podcast ranking? And what December's Nielsen figures tell us about Australians' news preferences. First up, less than two months after Henry Tejo was ousted from the CEO role at Dentsu Aegis Network, there has been more movement, with Rebecca Toz announcing on LinkedIn that she would be stepping down from her role as ANZ Managing Director at Merkel. Merkel is the holding group's data-driven marketing agency, and Toz has been with Dan since 2012 and in the MD role for less than a year. Brittany, what's going to happen over at Merkel now that it doesn't have a Managing Director? Well, it has a leader of sorts. So Oliver Rapson, who is the national managing director of iProspect, which is another Dentsu business, is now responsible for both businesses. So that is a big role for him. Dentsu said that it would mean, and I quote, elevating the product and enhancing the client experience and that it will streamline things. I don't know how closely those businesses work together usually or whether they'll be kind of forced to work closer together given this change. But, yeah, they didn't seem to think that they'll be replacing the role. It will just be Rapson who will be in charge of both. So not exactly um, what I expected. Usually you see kind of a a replacement, but, I mean – if Dentsu's shown us anything over the past 12 months, in particular the last couple of months, it's that they won't do what you expect them to do and that all of these kind of little businesses and big businesses are, you know, still very much up in the air. It's still very much a question of what they're going to do next with them, whether or not there will be more kind of mergers, whether or not there'll be more consolidation, restructuring. So, yeah, that's the latest. And it's interesting as well, isn't it, because – so it's less than two months after Henry exited, he left in November last year. And while obviously we still don't to this day really know the official reason as to why he was kicked out from what we can kind of glean from the industry gossip, he was perhaps making too much noise in that role. And maybe they brought him in to do a cleanup, but he was doing that too loudly, perhaps, whatever, or perhaps just not in the way that they wanted him to. I wonder if there's still a lot more streamlining to happen at Dan or even a little bit more streamlining to happen at Dan and whether the fact that they're not replacing this role suggests that maybe we should expect a couple more exits before the year is out. Yeah, there's been murmurings around Columbus as well, which is a Merkel company, and and those have been kind of going around the industry for a while. So I don't think people are particularly surprised that businesses like Merkel and Columbus are changing but you're right in that it's it's still kind of uncertain as to whether or not Dentsu regionally 
are happy with the restructure plans and think that further restructuring needs to happen, but just weren't quite on board with Henry's way of going about doing it, or if they just disliked the whole plan and Angela Tangus has a whole new plan. We don't know. So it hasn't been long enough to see what her approach will be. Um, but there's also been a few people who exited last year through various circumstances throughout that restructure who are kind of starting to pop up, starting to get new roles. Plenty who also haven't popped up and some of those have kind of been um, you know, they were they were people who exited kind of last May, June that still haven't emerged. Um, but this week we had Simon James Williams, who was the managing director at CARA, the media agency over at Dentsu, or one of them. He's now head of audiences at Finder, which is the financial services comparison site. And Nick Swift, who was at Dentsu for more than 20 years, who was one of the early exits, He's joined Rapid Media, which is kind of a small, small agency based in Melbourne. I think they've got three or four people there and he'll be senior account director um, and is kind of rejoining someone who he's known for quite a while there and who has brought him across. So people are starting to kind of settle into new roles, but I don't think that that means that things are settled at Dentsu yet. So on the subject of people settling into new roles, I'll put you on the spot here. Where do we think Henry's going to pop up next? Oh, God, that is putting me on the spot. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if he would know yet, to be fair. In my chats with him last year, and I mean, listeners would have been able to tell from his interview that he did on the Mumbrella cast as well a few months ago, he had such grand plans at Dentsu and had really mapped out this year in terms of what he had planned there and what else he needed to do there. He'd had obviously a stint of gardening leave before coming to Dentsu. So he had had, you know, I think two years off. So I'm not sure if he necessarily, you know, is in a position where he's like, okay, I'm happy to then sit at home and have some, have, have some of my time back for another 12 months or, or longer. But at the same time, it wasn't expected. And I think that he'll take as much time as he needs to figure out his next move. I mean, he's a smart guy. He's a strategic guy. So I don't think he'll be one to rush into setting up his own thing if that's not what he actually wants to be doing long term or alternatively jumping into a role that's perhaps a demotion or a step down somewhere else. So, yeah, I don't know if I've got any good tips there. Disappointing. (laughs) Next up, the alcohol industry faces 22 breaches of its advertising code. The Alcohol Beverages Advertising Code, which is the watchdog that oversees the advertising from the alcohol industry, has recorded a record number of 22 breaches of its standards for the final quarter of 2019. That's the highest figure in 21 years, and those breaches come from 39 determinations. Social media marketing seems to be the biggest issue here, with the majority of the breaches coming from small businesses, including several craft breweries. Pirate Life, which is an Adelaide-based brewery, was slapped with infringements for several ads, including one which showed a can underwater with sharks, and another for a mountain biker who was riding while drinking. Other companies that felt the wrath of the watchdog were Alcopop companies, including Poptails, which creates alcoholic icy poles and failed to make it clear that they were alcoholic. Now, 
the issue here seems to be a lot of these smaller companies aren't going to be spending the money on big campaigns. They're probably not going to be using big agencies to create those campaigns, especially not if they're only advertising on social media. So I think the landscape we're in, especially in the alcohol industry at the moment, seems to speak towards a lot of these smaller companies. You know, we're encouraging craft beer. We're picking up on all these, you know, spirits that are coming from really small creators. Surely as we see more of this and we see more of them trying to muscle ahead of everybody else by being creative on social media, we're going to see more and more breaches of the code. Totally. And I think, I think of koala in the mattress industry when I think of smaller businesses, but who are doing social media marketing extremely well and part of their model. And I think part of the model, if you're a small alcohol company, a microbrewery, one of those kinds of things is if you're wanting for your social to make an impact, you're having to react quickly, get it up quickly. You don't have the time or resources to be spending months and months on creative And so, obviously, the quicker you push stuff out, the riskier it is. And also, the smaller you are and the newer to the market you are, the less confident you're going to be with regulations and meeting them. So, yeah, I think you're totally right in that whilst it was maybe cafes a few years ago is like the trendy new thing, it seems that there's been more microbreweries, more craft beers, more small, interesting gin places and all of that kind of stuff so yeah i think it kind of moves with the trends and the trends at the moment are kind of interesting niche alcohol companies well a company that wasn't named um this time around but has been known to take a lot of risks with its social media marketing is little fat lamb Mm. and that brand has grown like exponentially in the last like what three four years and that just shows like they're targeting a very specific young audience and people are listening. Like they like young people don't care about disclosures of alcoholic alcohol icy poles, which I even messaged Hannah and said they look delicious. <laughs> like what I, I mean, guess I'm 16. a sucker for it. <laughs> I'll have you know that I am twenty three and fifty weeks. Brittany. Oh my god, the fifty weeks chef's kiss. <laughs> and it's also interesting to me because My dad has always said to me, like, when you pick wine, the more elaborate the label, the shitter the wine. And it's funny to see that now come across through, like, beer, especially, like, craft beer. Like, the beers now that are quite trendy, that are fruit-flavoured, like watermelon beer. It's all cartoons and stuff. It's fun to see – well, not fun, but, like, it's interesting to see that come through different aspects of the industry now. So, are you saying that – Little Fat Lamb, that they didn't appear in this one because they've gotten bigger and so they've gotten more resources and so they're more able to deal with regulations and, and oh, the code? I, I don't think that do Little think- Fat Lamb cares that much. Okay. No. I just, so just, I'm just saying have- it didn't appear in this one because maybe this quarter they didn't do anything particularly <laughs> just offensive. Quiet this quarter. Okay. It's funny, the other day there was a um, music festival that was BYO and literally down the bottom of the list of BYO, it was like a camping music festival, and down the bottom of the list of BYO it said in very big bold letters, except no Little Fat Lamb. Which Really? <laughs> yeah, because it's so alcoholic it's really strong yeah. and really drinkable and it comes in these huge plastic containers so like, no one knows what little fat lamb is made of <laughs> it's like, so that's gen- like you don't moonshine. know is it cider is it like an rtd no one knows what does it taste like 
Like fruit? Like cordial? It tastes like you're going to make terrible decisions. Yes. <laughs> See, I don't think I'm trendy enough because I, I don't drink a lot. So I don't know a lot of the, the new and up and coming alcohol brands. But to me, like when I read the word when you were saying, um, Hannah, Alco Pops and what are they called? Pop tails. All I could think of was like, remember the vodka mudslides when you were like oh my 17, God. 18? Like that's, that's like the cool, trendy alcohol I still think of. <laughs> Do you know what? And I, now we're talking about Little Fat Lamb and who knows what's in that. Do you know what I was thinking of the other day? Do you ever remember the time when you used to be able to go to the bottle and in a bin by the register would be prepackaged shots? And they were always like really terrible. You're both looking at me like this is when the age difference is very clear here because you're looking at me like I'm nuts. When I was 18 living in regional Australia, you could go to your local bottle and there would be these pre-packaged shots by the counter and you would pay like $2 for them, which is probably illegal now. And they were always horrible, like jam drops shots or like really creamy, disgusting shots and always right on the verge of being out of date. <laughs> oh my God. Anyway, well, they don't exist anymore. So. Is that like the BWS equivalent of like the confectionery I yes. love doom at the supermarket? Like, oh, I'm here. May as well pick up a handful of horribly disgusting $2 shots. So we'll do in a Macca's car park later on tonight. And <laughs> oh um, my question here is, I don't think the, any of these companies are going to care, right? Well, yeah, I was wondering, like, what is the retribution by being named by this watchdog? Like, is there a fine involved? Do they get... They're just named and shamed. Is that all it is? Well, they'd have to take the ads down. So um, it's worth pointing out in the case of the Pirate Life one, those ads actually got around because something that I wasn't aware of, but now that I think about it, it makes clear sense. You're not meant to show uh, drinking anywhere near water. So the oh. fact they were showing cans underwater and people drinking them underwater is a very obvious infringement of that. So obvious that I do wonder if maybe they knew because then it mm. started to do the rounds on Facebook and everybody was like, oh, look at them testing it because everybody apparently other than me knew that that was a breach. Mm. So now I wonder if all that's happening is they're being forced to take them down Maybe they don't care. Maybe they're like, let's run the gauntlet for as long as we can. It's costing us a dollar to put these up because we're, you know, Steve at the back Mm. is making them. So (laughs) shout out to Steve Jones, Steve at the back, (laughs) who's um, freelancing for us this week, (laughs) who I am not accusing of making dodgy ads. Um, So, yeah, I just wonder if they care. I wonder if this is just kind of like the Wicked Campers thing, except obviously Mm. far less extreme, where they're just flaunting whatever they can because any attention's good attention. Well, yeah, like if the only sort of like issue that you have with you're named by the Alcohol Beverages Advertising Code for breaching the code is you have to take the ad down. I don't think that matters. It takes you – if it's taking people, you know, half a day maybe to get an Instagram post made and put up like there's no skin off their nose if they have to take it down because people will have already seen it well especially if in the case of pirate life they are really um taking advantage of that that ad got screenshotted and shared everywhere so even if they have to take it down it's still Mm. alive on the internet that's obviously how the internet works so yeah i do wonder i just I definitely agree with you, Britt. I think as this continues, as we get more and more breweries, and especially as the industry gets more and more clogged with all these breweries, they're going to have to start trying harder to get people's attention. And I think in the time of social media, that means being edgier and edgier with your marketing and probably breaching more and more codes. 
Up next, the winners and losers in the fourth Australian podcast ranker. Commercial Radio Australia has released its fourth Australian podcast ranker. The system, which was introduced last year at the Radio Alive conference, is a top 100 list of podcasts in Australia based on an opt-in system. As of its launch, it only had large publishers, including the big radio companies on board, but as it continues, it has begun adding smaller publishers to the mix. We saw a reflection of that in the fourth ranking, which was released this week, including Schwartz Media and Tufop. That's Will Anderson and Charlie Clausen's podcasting business, which stands for 30 odd foot of podcast and the parent group being added to the lineup and several of their podcasts slipping into the top 20. A lot of criticism that the ranking got when it launched was that it only included the big companies, but as it begins to expand and include some of these smaller publishers, it's really interesting to see how much of a difference they've made to the lineup. Brittany, what do you think the lineup shows about how Australians listen to podcasts? Because when it first came out and it was just those big radio companies, it was primarily just radio catch-up podcasts, other than Hamish and Andy, who have been on the top three of the four rankers um and they are podcast specific at this point every the rest of them were you know the kyle and jackie o show kate Tim and marty have been in third place for almost all of them do you think this is actually reflective of how australians are consuming podcasts or do you think it's reflective maybe of how a certain subset of australians are consuming podcasts mm, hard because i think I was going to say, yes, it is reflective, but then you're saying, is it a subset? Well, I'm speaking as part of a subset, I guess, or as part of a demographic. I think it's getting closer for sure. I mean, I don't know what the demographic is that listens to catch up radio. It seems like a strange, strange thing to seek out and listen to not live. Uh, so I think, yeah, philosophy being included seems obvious to me hugely popular 7 a.m from schwartz it's really interesting to see how well that's done that kind of small bite-sized but still you know very intellectual look at the news and being a daily podcast i think that foray into daily stuff particularly daily news stuff is gaining more traction and i think longer term it'll be interesting to see what the pattern is like there because I, I I can find it hard to keep up with daily podcasts. I most of the podcasts I listen to are probably more weekly, but then if daily podcasts are popular, uh, you know, Full Story by the Guardian, for example, might really be proven correct when if if they join the list and and do well, like Seven AM has done, because it's a similar a similar setup where you know they take one story each day and dig in a bit but a little bit more long form for The Guardian. So, yeah, I I think it's definitely more reflective of what we traditionally consider to be podcasts rather than catch-up radio. And hopefully, I mean, it's, what, the fourth list. So I only assume that it will slowly and slowly get more and more reflective as, you know, podcasts are added to it. Yeah, I think it's really important to note there that um, CRA have – put the call out for podcast creators to join into the list um they've been really open about wanting to build it they've obviously encouraged smaller companies like schwartz and tufop to join um so yeah i definitely agree with you i think as we continue to go forward there will be it will only get better and better 
What I think is interesting is a rank that just looks at Australian podcasts because I know for myself and I know I'm not alone here, but I'm also um, quite a voracious podcast subscriber. So possibly not what everyone else is listening to. Um, I listen to primarily American podcasts. Mm, which, I was going to ask that. Whether, yeah. How many you listen to? And I think um, I remember last year at our Audioland conference, um, some data that was put forward showed that Australia has been kind of slow on the uptake of podcasts, but the thought put forward then was that perhaps it's because we don't have as much Australian content as we have American content. And I'm pretty happy to consume American content, but maybe other people aren't, or maybe other people are waiting for those Australian stories to come forward. So I think it'll be really interesting once more publishers get on board. I think if the ABC could get on board, that would be really interesting. Mm -hmm. They've obviously done really well with their true crime podcasting. Um, but yeah, I think it's Mamma Mia has a big podcast oh, network as well. Mamma Mia would be really that interesting. Seem to be on the list. I don't think they are yet. Um, and Britt, you mentioned the Guardian as well. What about you, Zoe? How many? What are your Australian podcast tastes like? Well, I've just opened the podcasting app on my phone, so I can actually like <laughs> reflect on data. like what what do I actually listen to? Um, I see Chat Ten looks three there. Yep, Chat Ten looks three. <laughs> Um, the Age Real Footy podcast when the AFL season's on. Not subscribed Highlight to that. of my Monday. <laughs> it's actually really interesting how well sports podcasts yeah. do on the ranking. Yeah, so that that doesn't surprise me. In terms of the ranking, what you were saying about how a lot of it is live catch-up radio, it doesn't surprise me at all that sports is quite high up there because outside of, you know, reading sports sections in like the paper or actually – listening to or watching sports sections of the news live, I guess this is um, sort of those special shows on SEN like Waitley are the only real sort of content out there that really takes an in-depth look at sport um, like every week or every day. Yeah. I, 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 you just saying that, Hannah, that you listen to more American podcasts, my foray into podcasts was – conversations which was at the time conversations with Richard Feidler and now Sarah Konofsky is there as well on the ABC and I would listen to that every day and that was my one podcast and I would listen weekdays and I'd get to the weekend and like really feel the hit when there wasn't an episode uploaded and sometimes if I'd feel like particularly self-restrained I'd like save a few episodes up and now I'm I'm like Oh, what Australian podcasts do I listen to? Because as soon as you open the door of American podcasts, which I never had because it was so intimidating, um, you know, you hear about all of the daily stuff over there, for example, and it's just like an absolute barrage of stuff. So I think I think the things that I would listen to most regularly would still be conversations. Sometimes Osher Ginsberg's podcast, Willosophy, Chat 10 Looks 3, sort of dipped in and out of like Rosie Waterland's podcasting efforts, haven't really gotten into Mamma Mia podcasts. But I think that overall, hopefully, say in a year, this ends up being like a really comprehensive list of the stuff that people care about in Australia. And then we can start talking about how that fits into what the internationals do. A big one I have a question about, Case File. That's probably the biggest sort of not series true crime podcast there is is that australian 
It is Australian. Um, I'm very quickly looking it up on my phone to see who it's run by. But yeah, it is Australian. It was started out of Australia. That's got to be one of our yeah. That would have to be one of the biggest stories. Ones. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure if they're under any networks. So yeah, see, that's the other question. Things like that, which are potentially uh, independent. Scrolling, scrolling. Yeah, so I think they're independent still, which is pretty impressive. Um, so ones like that, that are still independent. Also, um, you mentioned chat 10 looks three, they're hosted on the, um, podcast network run by the Batuta boys. So I think when stuff like that comes over, it'll be really interesting to see how the list changes and also to see where those radio catch up podcasts sit inside all that other content. Up next, Nielsen releases its digital content ratings for December. The Nielsen Digital Content Ratings were released this week for December 2019, and while December is usually a quiet month for audiences being the holiday period, 2019's December was up year on year across the board. That's largely due to the bushfire crisis and people seeking out news relating to it. As a result of that, the ABC and The Guardian both saw sizable spikes for the month. ABC jumped 5.56% to take second place, getting in ahead of nine, which doesn't happen all that often, while The Guardian had one of the best performances for the month, rising 10.54%. Brittany, this seems like fairly positive reflection on those titles, in my opinion. They definitely had some of the strongest performances of the month. Plenty of other outlets across the bushfire crisis did pull their reporting outside of the paywalls. I think across Nine's titles they did, and I think News Corp's titles did as well. Do you think it's interesting then that in the face of that, the ABC and The Guardian still performed the best? Yes and no, because you're still relying on people getting the message that your stuff's out from behind a paywall. Not surprised the ABC did so well at all. I mean, we know that people in affected areas have been relying on the public broadcaster. We know that, you know, across the board, they've had absolutely some of the best and most thorough and consistent crisis reporting and bushfire coverage so it doesn't surprise me from the ABC at all particularly because they've got so many people placed in these areas they're doing live coverage there the Guardian is refreshing and a positive surprise I think but I wonder as well how reflected in their donations for that month and their commercial model. Um, we know that they have kind of a reader donation set up, so they don't have a paywall, but whether or not this many more people being on their website, this many more people being there because of the bushfire coverage, I wonder whether or not that's led to commercial success for them as well. I think that it's it's interesting that kind of the ABC and The Guardian – particularly because they've been pitted up against News Corp in, you know, recent weeks that they've done so well and whether or not it is reflective of kind of a broader trend or trustworthiness or whether or not it's just because these people or people generally know that they can get bushfire coverage from the ABC, from The Guardian for free and that it'll be accurate. I'm not sure. Um, I think that based off of the conversation that's been happening around News Corp's bushfire coverage uh, and climate change discussions, whether or not, say, 
the next ratings period will be any different, I think that that's the one that I'll be most interested in. Yeah, it's definitely worth noting that almost everybody was up across the board on November. Um, those two definitely had better months than a lot of the others. A couple were only moving by two or three percent, and anyone who did drop dropped, I think, less than one percent. So it was like generally a good month overall. They definitely weren't the only ones who had good months. And I think you're right. When we look at the figures next month, it'll be really interesting to see because I'm not sure that. I think as well, you would expect to be able to go to the ABC or go to the Guardian and find bushfire coverage on the front page, really easy to find. I think you're not necessarily expecting that from news.com.au or from 9.com.au, who are the other two in the top three, um, just because they cover such a wide range of topics, whereas ABC kind of sticks pretty specific with their topics. Um, also in publisher news, the news caught back and forth, which you alluded to there, Britt, has continued. James Murdoch has now come out and condemned the climate denial practice by some of the media properties that his family own. I don't want to keep flogging a dead horse on this one because I know everybody and their dog in the media industry is talking about the potential change coming towards News Corp. But do we actually think one will or do we think this is going to be Alan Jones all over again where everybody is going to speak up about one incident that happened or in this case still kind of technically one incident, a very large incident, a month-long incident but still one incident and then – Come winter, the bushfires will cease and we'll all just flood back to News Corp. It's so Succession-esque, um, <laughs> which is the point, I guess, but of Succession, I guess. But, um, yeah, I mean, James Murdoch coming out and sort of defying the, the company line is positive, I guess, but I just think that these institutions are so built up and the 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 demographic that they reach the positioning that they have has is not you know a recent thing this isn't just you know a bushfire related thing i think that the change if there is one will probably come internally i think the email that was leaked from that News Corp staff member really sent ripples around. And, you know, for example, um, I saw on Twitter, Benjamin Law said, if there's anyone from News Corp who wants to quit their job, basically, I will take them out for lunch on me to teach them how to freelance. So, I mean, look, I don't know if everyone's going to be jumping out of News Corp to go freelance, but I think that 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 internal movement or that internal pushback of, no, I'm not happy with that edit or no, I'm not going to write it like that. Or actually, if I'm going to quote this person, I'm then going to fact check what they've said. If that starts to happen, we might see change locally and in kind of local properties like the Australian and the Daily Telegraph. But you think about kind of the Murdoch empire broadly and you think about Fox News and it's it's a behemoth. Um, Zoe and I went to a screening of Bombshell this week, which is about uh, Roger Ailes over in Fox News and his kind of downfall amid sexual assault, uh, sexual harassment and assault allegations. And that was such an insight just into how difficult it is 
to go up against a company, let alone a company like that. So look, I don't know. Uh, realistically, I think that it's good the conversation started. It's a matter – and it not started, I should say. It, it's it, it, It's been happening for a long time. I just don't think it's been as mainstream or as widespread. But I don't know. What do you think? Are you – are you positive or skeptical? My thoughts are all of the focus at the moment has been on their bushfire and climate change reporting. So maybe, you know, they'll just slowly concede and ease up on like the bushfire and climate change reporting, but that doesn't mean that they will change anything about their wider political reporting, their economic reporting, even sort of the more social topics that are touched on like um, – unisex bathrooms that seems to be a hot topic at the daily telegraph and that sort of thing like who they might ease up on bushfires but they can still stand firm on all of these other topics that still catch fire on social media and from the wider media industry but they can do what they can still do like whatever they like (laughs) (laughs) they can do what they want that is how freedom of press works (laughs) (laughs) i think um what will be really interesting here brit you reference kind of a change within the organization and i think we've definitely already seen that happen at the australian especially across 2019 if you look at some of the hiring that happened across 2019 there was quite at the beginning of around mid of the year there was quite an exodus of staff um, and a lot of those roles have been filled by people who are either former News Corp staff or current News Corp staff. There hasn't been much fresh blood over there in a little while. Um, I also think what would be the thing that would actually exact change would be a commercial problem for them. Mm. We saw Hugh Marks reference that Alan Jones did hurt nine radio commercially And I strongly suspect, obviously, this can't be proven until it is proven, but I strongly suspect that if he uh, stepped over the line again in the future and did hurt them commercially again, I suspect that Nine Radio will not have the same allegiances that Macquarie Media maybe did. Mm. And I would not be surprised if Ellen Jones faced repercussions for that. I think if News Corp in Australia is hurt financially by its actions then perhaps we will see some change but i think as long as it's just words or just thought or just opinion i don't think anything's likely to happen yeah i think you're right i know that mad effing witches which is the group that really mobilized that campaign against alan jones have started to try to activate a boycott against news corp but i have been thinking about that recently as to why something like that doesn't uh, people don't jump on and it doesn't gain as much traction as something like the Alan Jones thing. And I think with Alan Jones, you've got a face and a name to pin something on. You've got specific comments that you can point to. When you're talking about News Corp as a whole and you're talking about a pattern rather than any specific instances, it's much harder, I think, to galvanize people And as well, it's an easy choice to say, I just won't listen to Alan Jones. It's much, much harder to not engage with every News Corp property because it's so prolific. So there's murmurings for sure. And I think you're right. If the bottom line is hit in the same way that Macquarie Media's was with Alan Jones, because that was substantial, the, the impact that it had there. I think, yeah, there might be more of a of a murmuring within News Corp as to whether or not they need to change anything. 
Yeah, I think you're definitely right on that. If we look at um, some of the coverage that's happened in the US, Rupert Murdoch has been the face that they've pinned it to. We're less able to do that, I think, in this country because he spends so little time here anyway and he's kind of a very removed figurehead for what we've got going on here. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to see if it affects subscriptions. Um, Mm. News Corp very recently in the last couple of years or so really turned their commercial model around to the fact that they are very heavily now relying relying on digital subscriptions. I think if that is affected and we do have the figures for those, unlike the commercial figures, which are usually quite hard to prove, we do have the uh, subscription figures. So it'll be really interesting next time they Mm. release theirs to see if there has been any movement. That's all from us for the week. But before we go, I just wanted to let you know about the Mumbrella 360 Super Early Bird Savings. All tickets purchased for 360 before the 30th of January will save $1,000 off the ticket price. The program promises to be the biggest it's ever been, and you will glean insights from global industry leaders, sharpen your skills in dedicated masterclasses, enjoy vast networking opportunities, and much, much more. So if you know you're going to be at Mumbrella 360 in June, be sure to lock your tickets in this month so you can save yourself a heap of cash. There are only a limited number of early bird tickets available, so get in quick. You can check out mumbrella.com.au slash mumbrella360 for more info. Thanks for joining me, team. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.